0: Well, free speech has been ebbing away on college campuses, of course, for many years. Now colleges seem increasingly unable to take a joke, literally. Constant Kisson is a comedian. He's the host of the YouTube show Trigonometry. He was recently invited to perform at a college in London, but the group that invited him asked that he sign a contract, promising not to engage in any way in quote, racism, sexism, classism, ageism. Ableism, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, xenophobia, Islamophobia, anti-religion or anti atheist well, That's a long list. What was he supposed to joke about? Well, we've asked him to come on tonight to tell us. Mr. Kisson, thank you very much for coming on. First, is that real? <laughs> that li- is that, re- did you make up that list? Is this a comedy bet? Uh, no, it's not. It's
1: been very good for my comedy. But actually, if, uh, if you go further into the contract, they also demanded that all jokes must be respectful and kind, uh, which I think really takes a biscuit. And yeah, as you know, I was born in the Soviet Union and this really the getting this contract made me feel right at home.
0: It's <laughs> it's it's a, it's a, it's a little ham handed, I would say. But what is it? I mean, you're a working comedian. That's why I'm so grateful you're on. What is your life like now? Well, it's
1: getting very sensitive, and I think this is obviously an outlier. No one would suggest that every university and college is like this. But I think the reason that I made a stand on this issue is I don't want it to get worse. I don't want this to continue.
0: So so striking that this is being applied to comedians, these standards are being applied to all of us. We're all terrified. All of us live in fear, and freedom really is evaporating. But comedians used to be the one group that by definition was allowed to be transgressive because that's the whole point of comedy, saying the thing everyone else is afraid to say. Is it ominous? Do you think that comedians aren't even allowed to practice I think comedy?
1: so. I think so. We're the canary in the coal mine. And I think this is why it's gone viral. I think it's nothing to do with comedy, this story, actually. The reason that people all yes. around the world are tuning in and, and watching the video we recorded of um, of this um, is because it's not about comedy it's about ordinary people up and down the country and here in Britain and in America feeling like they can't say what they think I've had so many messages from people messaging me all kinds of people sometimes women going you know what I don't agree with radical feminism and if I say that in the workplace tomorrow I won't have a job anymore so what it's coming to is the fact that everybody feels like we're we're all kind of under arrest we're all all everything we say can and will be used against us in the court of public opinion and they're coming for the comedians first because we're, we're the ones that, as you say, are allowed to transgress, but everybody else feels it and that's why the
0: story's got the resonance that it has. It's not, this is not sustainable this moment. Thank you, Kevin. Constant. thank you very much. God bless you for what you're doing. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Tucker.
2: I think freedom of speech is absolute, and there should be no restrictions on it whatsoever. Um, no hate speech laws, I want to scrap all of those. No public order legislation that targets speech. No libel laws, I think there should be no restrictions whatsoever. And the best response to speech that is wrong or dangerous or racist or horrible is always more speech. Never censorship, never laws never putting someone in prison. So I'm a free speech absolutist because I think freedom of speech should be completely unfettered and uh, let loose on the world. So you think, for instance,
3: it should be acceptable for somebody, for instance, uh, uh, an imam to go, be able to go up on a street corner, stand on a pallet and say homosexuals should be murdered, for instance, for their... Yes,
2: yes. Um, and I actually have defended imams who have Horrible views about homosexuality or women or whatever else it might be, which a lot of free speech activists they actually run out of steam when it comes to defending extreme Islamists. I
1: definitely do. I think, yeah, right. Yeah. Well,
2: and they suddenly think, oh, I can't do that. But I think um, obviously there is such a thing as incitement to violence, mm. and that's not a free speech issue. For the base, uh, from the point of view that if you are inciting violence, you are conspiring in the commission of a crime. So that goes beyond freedom of speech, and then you are part of a criminal conspiracy of some description. But I think think even when it comes to incitement to violence we have to be really specific because that has become a very uh, misused term. I was really struck that the Metropolitan Police um, this week or last week they were talking about drill videos on YouTube. Drill is the latest form of grime music lots of young black kids listen to it in London and elsewhere. Uh, very violent music kind of praises gangs and stabbing attacks and guns and so on so it's and people are very scared of it. It's like the new gangster rap scare, but in Britain instead of the US. And the police made this incredibly interesting statement where they said, we're taking down hundreds of these videos because we think they're dangerous. So I think that was an act of police censorship. Um, And they said, uh, even if there is no obvious act of violence that has been incited by these videos, we can still say that these videos incite violence. I thought that was really interesting because incitement to violence now means pretty much anything you want it to mean. It basically just means that you really hate this form of speech, whether it's a drill video, whether it's Jermaine Greer going to Cardiff University and arguing that trans people aren't real women, that's also described as incitement to violence pretty much any form of speech can now be described as an to violence. So even there, I think we have to be very specific, and I would like to see evidence that the speech in question directly contributed to an act of violence before I would be willing to... Sanction any form of punishment for that speech. But what's interesting about that is, is that
3: that, has all, that argument has always been with us. If you think about the Jamie Bolger killings, mm-hmm. I mean, twenty odd years ago, that was blamed on computer video games. If you think about the um, the school shootings in Boulder, Colorado, they blamed it on Marilyn Manson. Yeah. Do you think you can ever attribute, um, you know, an act of violence to a particular type of thought or? As, as, oh yeah.
2: I think you can. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, uh, you know, the the guy, Mark David Chapman, who shot John Lennon, was inspired to do so by J.D. Salinger's uh, Catcher in the Rye. He really genuinely thought that Catcher in the Rye was giving him a message to kill John Lennon. So you could argue that Catcher in the Rye caused the death of John Lennon. Or um, Charles Manson and his crazy family were inspired to kill all those people in Los Angeles by the White Album. I mean, they really genuinely believed, deep in their heart, that the White Album by the Beatles contained all these messages about race wars and the, the, the piggies in the capitalist society who needed to be slaughtered and so on. Uh, they really believe that. And of course, you know, it, it, countless numbers of people have killed because they read something in the Bible or they believe something in the Quran. So it's unquestionable that ideas can encourage people mm. to commit violent acts. It's unquestionable that some people will look at a piece of art or read a book or hear a song and think to themselves, this work of art is telling me to do something really bad but if you were to um, organize society on the basis that that might happen then you are basically creating a a lunatic asylum in which all of us are punished on the basis that one or two crazy people might do something stupid after reading Catcher in the Rye or listening to the White Album and that would be a deeply unpleasant society because there's no end of cultural products or artistic things that could be said to inspire violence or hatefulness in one form or another. So I, but my issue with media effects theory, which is this idea that video nasties cause mass killings or video games made the James Bulger murder happen, or, uh, in the modern version, because the left, the effects theory used to be very prominent on the right among kind of old Christian women and Mary Whitehouse types and very conservative, um, stiff people. Now it's kind of shifted to the left, and it's very much more often the left now that argues about media effects theory and will say that lads' mags, if they're in shop, uh, on shop shelves, will cause men to become rapacious and anti-women, or uh, violence against women in films will cause men to commit violence against women in real life. So the left has utterly embraced the media effects theory. My problem with the media effects theory is that it presents all people as almost like animals who just look at something and then think, I must act on that. And that is a very demeaning view of the vast majority of human beings who actually are perfectly capable of thinking for themselves and perfectly capable of making a decision about what they should do with their lives. So I would be very wary of any justification of censorship that was made on the basis that we basically are monkey see monkey do and that we see something or hear something and then immediately feel that we have to commit a violent act on the back of it.
4: My model is non-violent direct action, inspired by people like Martin Luther King, Mm. uh, but also Mohandas Gandhi and others. Um, I think their methods of peaceful direct action and, where appropriate, civil disobedience against unjust laws is the model by which all successful movements for social change have won through. Mm.
1: But I'm curious about, there will, be other, there will have been other people who would have been watching Martin, Martin Luther King marching and, and seeing those movements who would not have had the courage or whatever it is that's driven you to risk your life and limb, essentially, for what you believe in. What do you think it was that made you prepared to do that, to be willing to risk your life, essentially, for, for that?
4: Well, you're right. I mean, <laughs> my school friends... Uh, also saw the same images right. but didn't act hmm. um, I guess I've just got quite a strong sense of right and wrong um, perhaps an overdeveloped conscience <laughs> um, I, I don't like to see other people suffering you know, I, I love freedom, equality, justice I love other people I put myself in their shoes if it was me who was being persecuted or unjustly treated I would want someone to help me so when I see others suffering, I think, well, if I want others to help me in that situation, then surely I have some responsibility to do something to try and help them.
1: And were you always like that? Were you like that as a kid? If you saw something, some injustice happening as a 10-year-old, would you try to step in or defend people who can do that? Yeah,
4: and I don't know exactly where it came from. I, I suppose it's partly from my very strict, quite fundamentalist Christian upbringing. Mm. Uh, my parents instilled me in a very strong sense of, um, you know, follow your own conscience. Don't just go along with the mob. Think for yourself. Stand up for what is right, even if it's unpopular. And you know, from a religious point of view, um, be a good Samaritan. You know, don't walk by on the other side of the street when someone is is suffering. So I guess that 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 was part of the fact that impelled me to take up these human rights causes. I, I do
5: not believe that I have stopped changing my mind about things. And so I think it's, um, you know, the ability to hear other opinions um, can mean that I might change my mind and uh, or, or improve the way I argue or just get a new perspective on the world. So, even from an entirely personal point of view, I think it's a peculiar idea to have in your head that, you know, you at any age say, this is what I think, and that's it. I mean, never will it ever change. I mean, obviously, as you get older, you're more accustomed to having developed and thought back about right? this. But, I mean, nonetheless, <clears throat> we'll want to be open all the time. The world changes as well, so you need to be able to take account of things that change. <clears throat> so that seems to me to be so important because this idea that you sort of say, right, this is what I think... I'm never going to think anything else. I mean, you might I mean, you just hide under the bed. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, you just say, I, you know, how boring. It would mean that you'd read a book and nothing would occur. I mean, you know, that you'd, you'd never be able to, to watch a podcast and your brain work because you'd say, no, 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 this is what I think and nothing else will, you know. So for me, it's because we all, don't we, um, want to access new ideas to stimulate ourselves to kind of test out and also because by the way there's a lot of problems in the world that need solving and we need as many people kind of addressing them as possible and you need to be open minded to consider that I think as well that the intellectual life by the way is exciting and I think that you know there's nothing more brilliant than when you read a novel or you read an I've just read um, Andrew O'Hagan's uh, essay on Grenville in the London Review of Books Uh, It's it's like something like thirty thousand. It might even be longer, thirty thousand words. But it's it's like a little book. I mean, just I learned. It's the most perfect essay. Um, It makes you think. It's shocking. It's moving. It reveals new information. It's a brilliant piece of journalism. It's fantastically important uh, way of understanding the world. Um, demos have just brought out a new report on nostalgia which is based on the notion that probably people voted brexit and uh, populism in france and germany based on nostalgia a thesis which i completely disagree with but the report is well written it's got great quotes in it i loved it i kind of learned a huge amount from it so i didn't agree with the thesis but it was fantastic. And, you know, and then I kind of bore everyone Richard, i say, oh, God, this, this, you've got to read the devil's book on the so. You've got to read the Ella, as I'm doing with you. Mm-hmm. Because you learn, you know, things I didn't know. It's not feasible. So I believe everyone's like that, and everyone should be like that. And ideas are important because society cannot move on, cannot uh, resolve any problems, cannot um, uh, uh, solve the problems of humanity if we're not constantly intellectually open to each other's developing ideas, that people who are brighter than us taking ideas from 2,000 years ago and thinking about how they apply today, people who are not as bright as us but have got an absolutely sharp wit who see something in a different way, mm. people whose experiences are different, which is why, you know, identity politics is one of the great tyrannies of our time. But that's not to say that you don't want to have any knowledge of somebody's personal experience mm. uh, through that created by their identity, because that can give you a great insight as well. So... Of course, the frustration of this kind of stratified, static, dead, intellectual climate that we live in. I can speak on this. I know you don't. Don't speak to me. I refuse to listen.
1: We talk to people on the right, we talk to people on the left. um... And I think it's that, it's the, the fact that we talk about free speech a lot, yeah. Yeah. I think that's the number one well, issue yeah, that I makes mean, that, you a fascist That is now. a problem,
6: and I think, you know, we, do, we talk about the tone of the debate on, on the hard left, is is some of these, these terms like fascist, racist and stuff, is that, they, you know, they seem to think that they're like, you know in Karate Kid, the crane kick, you know, yeah. they seem to think that that's always going to be the conversation ender, and once upon a time, possibly it was. Yeah. Problem is, is like you keep rolling it out every single day on Twitter, you know, every single day online for people that patently aren't. It's such serious words. It's such an awful thing to be like a, like a genuine, like biological racist, It's just probably the worst sort of view that you could hold. So once people see that applied to people that patently aren't, then, then the word has already lost its power. And that's what I think that they're running up against now. And that's, and in a way, and this is a problem for the left is that, you know, some legitimate Cool. I mean, it is very much the, the boy who cried wolf, yeah. you know, isn't it? Some legitimate criticisms of people, and now people are able to sort of shrug them off because they're now looking at it in, in a litany of things where people have, you know, again, it's this thing hyperbole. People have tried to get, get an idea across the line with, with emotion and guilt trips mm. rather than with reason.
1: Mm. And it's a good example of what you're talking about because, like, every time Francis calls Tommy uh, Robinson far-right on Mm. the show, we get a bunch of people going, he's not far-right, he's just, you know, a normal guy. And you go, well...
6: I mean, if he's not (laughs) far-right, what...
1: (laughs) Right. And I think the reason people now think that way is because that label of racist or fascist has been so debased that no one really knows what a racist is anymore.
6: Yes. Do Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think as well, like... And this is one of the problems is in public life, is like, do you remember when people get accused of being racist? It, it, no one ever owned it either, you know, and I'm not, not this is not a proving of racism, but I thought, yeah, but, like, <laughs> but when people say that things that are patently fucking racist, right, mm. or being caught saying stuff that's racist, yeah. like, you know, Mel Gibson, I mean, those mm. phone calls, if you've never, I mean, they're just mind-blowing, right? But if someone had just come out and just said, you know, yeah, i yeah, yeah. You know, they never say, they say, and they, not only that, they always go to the opposite of saying I'm the least racist person. Going, you go, <laughs> mate, you ain't the least. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't use those words, Mel, if you're not a little yes. bit, you know, I'm just saying it's a spectrum and, you know, you're closer yeah. to that end than, than you are to that end. So I think on both sides, it's been fudged, right? You get the people that are calling people are racist that possibly aren't racist, and then people who are clearly racist, like you say, going uh, no no me me you ask anyone in the tiny community of, of, of my wife right <laughs> and and they'll tell you I'm I'm a lovely bloke you know a person that you know possibly depends on me being in work weirdly they will support you know my character
7: And one of the really unfortunate things that was going on, particularly in the U.S., was that um, the debate about freedom of speech just became a left-right culture war. And if you were in favour of freedom of speech, it's because you wanted to basically shout obscenities at un- minorities. Is one phrase yeah. to get, and that the left were entirely just these kind of snowflakes who had no idea what free speech was. It's not really like that. So we got together this um, series of speakers who we felt really excelled at kind of putting the kind of liberal to libertarian, even progressive case for freedom of speech. So along with our own Brendan O'Neill, who spoke at a couple of events, Stephen Pinker from Harvard spoke, um, a guy called Camille Foster spoke on our identity politics panel, Mark Lilla, a few others. And so the, the whole aim of it really was to try and be upfront in sort of tackling this problem of censorship, of protests against speakers, people dislike identity politics, etc. But to do it in such a way that drew out what we think is some of the more important arguments for it, which I think are classically liberal and even progressive, um, which at that particular time seemed to be almost entirely absent from the debate, it felt like.
3: I mean- Why is it do you think that the right wing, you you know, the moment you talk about freedom of speech, everybody goes, well, you know, that's just, you know, that's Mm. just right wing people. When, you know, and people, a lot of people would say that there's no problem with freedom of speech, particularly in this country, when you compare it with, Mm. I don't know, Venezuela, China, Mm. whatever else. Why do you think people associate freedom of speech with the right wing?
7: I think the first thing is to say that it feels like, broadly speaking, the kind of censorship on a kind of state level, as well as the sort of censorship you see on a university campus. Just because of the way things are at the moment, it tends to be people either on a campus, could just be anyone who's kind of, you know, to the, to the right of centre, effectively finding yeah. themselves being censored because of the political culture on most university campuses. And then I think broadly speaking, I think people think of censorship ultimately as something which is reserved for far-right nutcases and racists, you know, and yeah. that is, there's, there's some truth in that. Um, but nevertheless, I think the other aspect to it is there has been this um, profound kind of confusion as to, first of all, the fact that if you censor anyone in any circumstance, that there is a point at which that will be used against people you happen to agree with. And I think we're seeing that play out in relation to some kind of old feminists finding themselves on the receiving end of censorship, et cetera. Um, but the other thing I think is the kind of r- the sort of historical illiteracy of it, really. It doesn't really take much for um, a political culture to change. And if you kind of create the means through which... Um, what are deemed to be extreme views can be snuffed out either by the state or by, um, you know, Uh, by campaigns or by university administrations or whatever, it won't be long until those same tools are used against you. And I think what's kind of interesting about kind of even characters on the kind of US alt-right or at least alt-light is they're increasingly kind of getting people shut down. You know, James Gunn, this guy who was directing the Guardians of the Galaxy series, effectively a bunch of kind of alt-light journalists dug up his old tweets and got him sacked. Because this dynamic, say, on social media, where things you might have said, jokes you might have made in the past that were offensive can be used to effectively get you sacked, Cudgel can be swung by the other side just as easily. So I think it's, it tends to be, it does. I think it's a combination of where the political culture is at, at the moment, but also, unfortunately, just an incredible kind of short sightedness on behalf of a lot of left wingers these days. It feels like. Well,
1: that's what I always say on that issue is like once you invent this weapon mm. of. Destroying people's lives and livelihoods because they made some joke or whatever you don't get to control who uses it mm. uh, And I think a lot of people on the left are now finding it being used against them And I don't agree with it being used in either direction mm. But I think once you once you make it legitimate to discredit somebody on the basis of a tweet They they posted at three o'clock in mm. the morning or whatever that's
7: that's that's then becomes the norm mm. that that becomes the way that war the culture was waged no exactly i think we're, we're really starting to see that that's going on both sides now you know if you kind of compare the roseanne situation in the u.s where she obviously tweets this kind of pretty racist stuff effectively um and then instantly there's this very concerted effort to get us sacked. you saw the flip side of that with the james gunn thing now we could argue who are those two people we find more amiable who we might agree with more and i'm sure where all of us would stand on that to yeah. be honest. but nevertheless it's quite clear that as soon as you create this dynamic it will be exploited by the other side and it what's i think the most um uh irritating thing about all of this is the fact that it's a lot, often people who claim to be very radical, who claim to be um, about kind of really challenging the consensus etc, who are very keen on censorship, which to me is insane if you go about branding everyone you dislike an extremist and insisting they be shut down then if you are someone who's trying to further radical ideas, that's something which is an, an incredible threat to yourself and I think what it actually shows is that vast sections of the left today even though they like to pose as very radical, I think the fact that they're so comfortable with censorship speaks to the fact that deep down, whether they realise it or not, they're not actually saying very much that's actually that challenging to the status quo and to those in power. More often than not, they seem to be on the side of people who want to bolster state power to do things that and to crush people they disagree with. So I think it's quite revealing on that level as well, to some extent.
3: And do you think students have become more censorious? Do I th-
7: you th- mm, it's, a, it's a tricky one because I, the last thing I want to do is kind of smear all students and I think yeah. this kind of...
3: I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you fucking stay up. With, you don't do any work. Anyway, sorry. Go on they're lazy they're yeah. the real coming out yeah. as we do the show <laughs> yeah I know the UKIP mate
7: <laughs> I think I think it's definitely the the kind of extremes of student politics are becoming more extreme um, yeah. and they're becoming more vocal and I think the one thing that has really been the difference is the fact that where there was always other people in the room could be student politics could be people within a university administration who would kind of stick up for themselves, who would say, look, we've invited this speaker, but you can't just on the basis of a small group of you who are protesting this, shut this down, because there are other people who want to hear this perspective, challenge this perspective, etc. You know, university administrations would previously, you know, consider free speech to be a kind of guiding value and res- would resist attempts to kind of censor. Mm. You know, even up until about 10, 15 years ago, there would always be these arguments and these battles, but the extent to which these small groups of campaigners could succeed was always somewhat more limited because there were at least enough people willing to stick up for free freedom of speech. I think the big problem is that a lot of these um, student protesters, these kind of intense identitarians, people who are really thin-skinned, they've been given the moral authority in these situations. People even are really concerned about disagreeing with them because they know the abuse that could be hurled at them, etc. So there's there's an element, I think, of kind of cowardice on behalf of a lot of university administrations, say. And I think in relation to students more broadly, I think there's a very strong conformist climate, which makes them more likely to either just keep their mouth shut or just kind of leave them to it. So I think that whilst these people have always kind of existed, I think the big change now is, unfortunately, there's just so little pushback against them, and I think that has allowed them to kind of chalk up more wins insofar as censoring people, um, but also for their ideas to become more and more strange <laughs> and more and more extreme, because there's no one really in the room to kind of temper and challenge them, it feels like. So what you're saying really is not the students who have become more
1: censorious, mm. it's that. The silent majority has become increasingly more silent. I
7: think so. I mean, you do start to see those things changing. I mean, because a lot of the work that we've been doing, particularly in the UK, has been directly with students. We've run kind of um, tours of universities, working with students to set up debates before. Um, We've um, worked with them on developing our university rankings, which we've done over the last four years, which looks at free speech policies, etc. And there is a growing number of them, of left, right and neither, who are increasingly... Um, appalled by this and they kind of recognise that a lot of this really holds them in contempt in particular because if you're going around saying that we can't have this speaker on campus because it will hurt you it will, it will it will effectively either hurt you psychologically or you might be stupid enough to be won over by it people are really reacting to that in a kind of visceral way and I also think because of the fact that the bar for censorship on campus has been getting lower and lower I mean up until about 10 years ago it was really only about kind of far right nutcases that this debate was had out but you know as of a few years ago the stories you're seeing in the newspapers. Birmingham University banning sombreros and I think this has created a kind of visual because it's, it's cultural
1: appropriation because it's cultural appropriation
7: let's play this uh, mm. uh, this oppression bingo <laughs> yeah uh, what, what are some other examples of things that have happened I'm trying to think so there's there's a lot around fancy dress which is quite interesting also cultural appropriation it's, it's a strange mix of cultural appropriation and cultural insensitivity I guess so just telling people they can't dress up as gangsters telling people which well, I don't know because that's more.
1: offensive to gangsters that's
7: offensive to gangsters etc yeah. I mean they're never that, quite that is say. definitely a minority group that not a, <laughs> a lot of protection well, exactly no, no one's really speaking up on their behalf, but I think, <laughs> uh, the gangster thing, this, what's interesting about a lot of these kind of calls to censorship, I mean, I don't know who they've got in mind when they say that, but it's almost like in the thing about when people are obsessed with this cultural appropriation issue is that they actually reaffirm stereotypes yeah. in a stretch kind of way. Right. They're suggesting this will be you know, offensive to XYZ group. I think it's the thing that really makes um, not so much laugh, but worry, I guess, is the fact that you've even had... It seems like so many kind of people in student unions, who obviously do the lion's share of this kind of censorship um, on campus, they almost have so little self-awareness that you have ridiculous situations like no gangster costumes, or things that we've been saying, seeing recently over the last couple of years, which is free speech societies, for instance, being blocked from being set <laughs> up. And I think my favourite example was a couple of years ago at the University of um, Oxford, where a bunch of students got together in response to the kind of censorious climate on campus and wanted to start a free speech magazine called No Offence. Yeah, and it was banned from the Freshers' Fair <laughs> and reported to the police. And I think that's just, I, I think goes to show the fact that so much that we see on campus, it's so ridiculous yeah. that it's often tempting, I think, whether you're a student there or actually just looking on to think, why does it matter? But I think actually it speaks to how unchecked a lot of this has gone because we're not even talking about things that anyone with a modicum of common sense would think were a problem anymore. It's really gotten that bad, it feels like. As always, follow us
1: uh, on social media, at TriggerPod. Subscribe to this YouTube channel if you enjoyed it. And also as
3: well, um, if you really like it, just recommend it to someone, that's it. Tell a friend.
1: And most, most importantly, if you've already subscribed, uh, click that bell right next to the subscribe button to make sure you get notified every time we release a video.
3: And uh, thanks a lot for watching.
1: See you next week. See you next week, bye-bye.